Hey everybody, it's David Clough. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, interesting times in our politics today. Uh, you can see by Donald Trump's Twitter feed and his increasingly desperate statements that he must not be liking their internal polling. Uh, his frustration sadly doesn't come from the human toll that the pandemics had, or I think even the fact that our country is now going to be in a years long recovery that didn't have to be as bad as it was. But for him, he's just worried about his own politics and his reelection. Um, you know, I'm recording this on Wednesday, May 20th. We saw him ranting and raving about Michigan, just sending out absentee ballot applications, requests to people to, to remind them they can vote by absentee, threatening to withhold aid. So I think all this comes from the fact that in their numbers, um, they're not liking what they're seeing. And so I think we should generally ignore that those of us committed to defeating Donald Trump. One, these things can change. This election, we better assume, could still be close. Donald Trump, as I've often said, has an enviably strong base. He's going to register a lot of voters. His ceiling may not be very high from a vote standpoint, but I also think he's got a sturdy floor. Um, secondly, we don't know what you know things are going to look like four or five months from now. It may be that the second wave uh, hopefully doesn't come back. The economy recovers not quickly, but directionally. And, you know, Trump will have an argument to make. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's always better to work uh, in politics and campaigns as if you're losing by 10 points. And um, that can seem like a you know, silly expression, but it's true. All of us, from Joe Biden to local volunteers on the ground, need to do everything we can to take advantage of this moment. Because um, this may change and Trump is looking very weak right now, you know, may not stay down the entire time. And um, even if he does, um, you know, we need to win every single vote we can win everywhere we can win it, both to put a thumping on him, but to win Senate races and House races and state representative races and state legislative races. Listen, the truth is, there's a scenario where maybe Joe Biden could win this election really doing very little at all. And maybe even that's a smart strategy. But we have to do everything we can to maximize this. And, and I think if you could think about a scenario where, you know, we could beat Donald Trump by the kind of margin that we won by in 2008 against John McCain, seven points, you know, that produced a landslide. And, and again, I don't think we should assume that. I think this is likely still to be an uncomfortably close race in a number of states. But in either scenario, it's razor thin or it's not. The same intensity has to be in place, the same work, the same maniacal focus on finding voters and doing what you can do and making the case and creating content. Uh, the other thing I'd say about the polls is, you know, in most of the states where Joe Biden is having a lead right now, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, Wisconsin's probably the closest of those bunch. You know, it's not like he's at 51 or 52 or 53. You know, he's in the high 40s. So there's a bunch of people, I think, who've left Trump temporarily. So maybe a state's polling right now, 47, 43. You know, so I think some of that vote comes back to Trump. I think it's parked right now and undecided. They're unhappy with how he's handled the pandemic, but ultimately they're going to be forced to choose. And I think some of those voters are going to choose Trump. So you'd always rather be in a more favorable position in politics than not, which I think is where Joe Biden and the Democratic Party find themselves right now. Um, but you better not assume that lasts forever. Um, and even if you get lucky 
and things don't change, you need to maximize this because in a closely divided country, you don't have these opportunities very often. So my advice is ignore the polls, assume that this thing is going to come down to a few states and a few votes. And if it doesn't, we will be better off for all the work that goes into it. But if it does, <laughs> we'll be doubly happy uh, that we approach this with ferocity and intensity uh, so that we win this presidential election. And my guest today is someone who, like Eric Holder did last week, I think can speak so eloquently to the stakes in this election. So Shannon Watts leads Moms Demand Action. Uh, she has an amazing origin story, which she'll talk about in our discussion. She uh, started this organization and her activism after the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012 uh, and has really helped build an organization um, that is doing an amazing work out there and standing up to and even beating the NRA. And I think is going to be an important part of a winning coalition this November. But, you know, if we don't win this election and we have Donald Trump for four more years, a Republican Senate, so many more judiciary uh, appointments, including the Supreme Court, likely. What that means in terms of making progress on gun safety over the next few decades is going to be seriously compromised. So I'm excited to talk to Shannon about their plans for this election, about her origin story. She was a communications executive, a stay-at-home mom for a period, uh, and now is leading this amazing organization. And, you know, how she sees the pandemic as it relates to her organization. They, like a lot of organizations, have had to adjust a little bit. They started as a digital first organization, so probably have some advantage there, but how things have changed in this pandemic and how she sees that uh, affecting the organizing that needs to happen uh, between now and November. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Shannon Watts. Shannon Watts, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. No, of course. Well, so much I want to learn from you uh, about the organization that you've built and your origin story. But I want to talk in the moment we're in. You've got millions of members and activists deeply committed to gun safety and making the impact in elections. So how have you guys had to adjust uh, given the pandemic? You know, we were really built for this moment. I started Moms Demand Action as a Facebook page in 2012. And we've been a digital first organization ever, ever since. Um, we invested in a lot of different technologies that we make available to every single volunteer, not just to leadership. Things like Hustle and Ban and Slack and Zoom accounts. And so we were built for this moment. Um, and we are seeing really significant increase in, in our output. Um, you know, we are having events, virtual events, uh, summits. Um, we are switching our in-person advocacy days to being online. And what we're finding is that this technology enables us to be even more equitable and inclusive. So, you know, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the old way of doing things. Um, and we're, we're even having legislative wins, which is amazing to me that we can organize online to uh, defeat bad legislation, pass good policy, um, all just within the last, you know, 60 days or so. So we're learning a lot of lessons, but also that um, we know we can successfully pivot uh, to win in 2020, the, the 2020 elections. Well, congratulations on those wins. Um, and you have, so I'm curious because I want to talk about the upcoming elections, but um, so you're finding in this moment, both your volunteers, but also the voters and citizens are trying to reach to, people are eager to keep going uh, and have the conversations. 
Oh, they're very eager to keep going. You know, there have been a lot of inflection moments along the way where I thought, okay, um, you know, we've amassed this huge grassroots movement and will they peel off uh, either because they're burnt out or they're interested in other issues or, or they, they feel defeated. And the exact opposite has happened um, year after year. And I think that's in part because people know when they plug into Moms Demand Action and, you know, we're not just uh, women and moms, we're mothers and others now, we even have Students Demand Action, they know we will make the most use of their time. They know that we will be effective. And and that has served us well. You know, even if, let's say, gun safety is among your top issues, um, if you get involved in our organization, we will make sure that you make a difference in your state. And I think that's what's attracted so many people to the organization. Right. So you mentioned you've had, even recently during the pandemic, some success at the, the local and state level. That's been part of your story uh, really since the beginning. Uh, we on this pod- podcast focus um, a lot of our uh, time and attention on the presidential race. So I'm curious um, how... So Donald Trump, you know, he has now become, I think, uh, the greatest threat we've ever seen in the Oval Office, you know, as it relates to gun violence, whether he actually believes that or not uh, in the very beginning, that's where he's ended up. So I'm just curious, um, the motivation this presidential election provides your members uh, and, and, and speak to the difference for people who may not fully understand the difference between a Joe Biden as president and a Donald Trump as president as it relates to gun safety issues? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, a large difference. You know, when we started this work back in 2012, we thought we would immediately pass what was called the Manchin-Toomey bill. That was legislation at a federal level that would have closed the background check loophole that allows gun sales, um, unlicensed gun sales without a background check. We thought that was a no-brainer. And instead, what happened was that it failed by a handful of votes about six months or so after the Sandy Hook tragedy. And that included some Democratic senators. So we knew that we had our work cut out for us. And so what we did was pivot and start doing this work in state houses and in boardrooms, which is you know how many social movements actually work in this country, right? Congress is not necessarily wor- where this work uh begins, it's where it ends. And there were governors who were willing to pass stronger gun laws. There were companies that were willing to change their policies. And the other interesting thing is we realized we were going to end up playing a lot of defense. The the NRA's agenda had been sailing through state houses for over a decade. So we would have to show up at every gun bill hearing, at every legislator meeting, and push back against their agenda. And that strategy has worked. You know, here we are eight years later. Um, we've passed background checks now in 22 states, red flag laws in 19. We've disarmed domestic abusers in 28 states. And we have a 90% track record of beating back the NRA's bad bills every year for five years in a row. Right. So I was in Connecticut with President Obama um, for the memorial service uh, at, for, for the Sandy Hook victims. And um, I couldn't believe it when Washington failed to act. So it is so um, admirable um, that rather than uh, as despondent as I'm sure you were, you decided to to organize those boardrooms and those state houses, you said, to eventually bring about change. I'm curious. So when you think about your work in, in 2020, I saw a poll, I think it was out just today, said that amongst the sort of infamous Trump-Obama voters, 
85% of them support background checks and the types of policies you support. Not surprising, I guess. They're sort of, uh, I guess, in line with the rest of the country. But it shows that those voters who are part of how you win back the White House probably are going to be movable uh, on this issue and by your organizers. So talk a little bit about how you guys are thinking about the role you can play uh, in, in November. Yeah, it's important to point out, you know, that gun safety used to be an issue that politicians ran from. Now they're actually running on it, particularly among women voters who often decide elections. Those are the people who they're really talking to. And when they talk to them, they talk about gun safety. You know, we believe this will be a top three issue in 2020, right up there with healthcare and the economy. And polls show near universal support for gun safety policy, like background checks. We actually just released some new polling, and it found that during the pandemic, there's a significant surge in the intensity of people's support for background checks on all gun sales. And you know, they're angry that a Republican Senate and the president have refused to support stronger gun laws, especially in light of all the shooting tragedies that are happening in this country. So anyone who calls gun safety a political third rail is working from a playbook that's almost a decade old. There is no issue that has such broad support and makes so many people so energized. And that's how we win in 2020. Um, We are committed to spending $60 million. uh, And we have, you know, combined that with our our 6 million supporters. And we really do believe we can elect what we refer to as a gun sense president. We believe we can flip the Senate, uh, hold the House and continue to, to change the makeup of state legislatures. Well, that is a remarkable program. And when you talk about the 60 million, um, roughly how much of that is, uh, you know, to support organizing by organizers, how much of it's digital, digital persuasion uh, without giving away the keys to the kingdom, kind of what, what, your, what, what are you finding the best way to allocate those resources? Well, I'll give you some examples. So, um, you know, before the coronavirus crisis, our students demand action volunteers were going to do on-campus registration drives for voters. Uh, and then, when schools were shut down, they pivoted to doing this work online uh, and to doing it in a relational way. In other words, reaching out to their peer groups. And so we gave them $1.5 million with the goal of registering over 100,000 new voters. And we have seen an 80% increase in student leader engagement just since social distancing began. Um, They've launched virtual field offices in 37 states and Washington, D.C., And it's a remarkable success. Um, When you look at that investment, we know that that will change uh, the equation in 2020. On top of that, we're actually spending $8 million in the state of Texas to flip the state house to win new congressional seats in suburbs like Dallas and Houston, El Paso. Um, In Arizona, we've committed to spending $5 million uh, to help Joe Biden win the state to defeat Martha McSally. Um, and to flip both chambers of the state legislature. So these are the kinds of efforts that we're already investing in now, and there'll be lots of of news coming out along the way. Thank you for that. That's kind of a helpful overview of how you guys are thinking about this. I'm curious, Shannon, um, we can get numb to the things these days. President today just suggesting that if, 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 States like Michigan and Nevada just allow people to apply for an absentee ballot. They're going to not get coronavirus aid. But just in the last few days, uh, you know, we saw those disturbing images of 
uh, of men with rocket launchers and subways. You had President Trump yesterday saying basically armed vigilantes should uh, take to the fields in Virginia to protect potatoes. I'm just curious, when you see these images or these words, like as a leader in this movement now, kind of how do you react? What do you hear from your members? You know, open carry is something that we have been warning Americans about uh, since the very beginning of Moms Demand Action. Back in 2014, four of our volunteers were having a new membership meeting in a restaurant outside of Dallas. And that information about that meeting was made public on Facebook. And they looked out the windows during their their lunch and they saw uh, many pickup trucks, mostly men, and, and they got out and started pulling out long guns. Uh, rifles, semi-automatic rifles, and and stood there um, to intimidate and, and essentially threaten them during their entire lunch. And there was nothing that could be done about it. That's perfectly legal in the state of Texas to open carry long guns. Um, and that was when we really sounded the alarm. And, and we were right. You know, we're continuing to see this behavior. It's extremism. Um, and it's, it is culturally reprehensible. Uh, it is socially despicable. It is meant to silence your opposition, to intimidate lawmakers, and and ultimately it undermines democracy. And that's why you know we're so concerned when we see gun extremists creating these rallies. And make no mistake, these rallies are being organized specifically by gun extremists across the country to. Uh, allegedly oppose stay-at-home orders, but what they're really doing um, is advocating for a complete lack of gun laws in this country. Right? Um, they're they're threatening that that governors will use stay-at-home orders in the future after a mass shooting to remove people's guns or their gun rights, uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. So, you know, we strongly oppose open carry, and and the stronger laws we're advocating for um, could help address some of this this really dangerous behavior that we're seeing all across the country. So you're closer to this than I am. So um, I may be wrong about this, but my sense is that just talking strictly about politics and the acquisition of votes in this next election, um, you know, this is not going to be helpful to uh, the crazy other side, right? Because I think that we know that a lot of the people who are going to decide this election believe in background checks, closing the gun show loophole, assault weapons ban. But now you add this on top of it, right? Yep. <laughs> Which is, you know, the percentage of Americans that support gun, I mean, rocket launchers and subway is probably like 5%. So talk, speak to that a little bit. Like, I'm not sure. I understand they're trying to intimidate. Um, and I'm deeply worried about that. But at the end of the day, I think people feel so strongly both about this election and gun safety issues that if anything, it's going to provide extra motivation. And even some people who may be on the fence say, you know, they've gone too far. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, again, this issue has such broad support. Gun safety is so supported uh, by American voters. And when they are exposed to this extremism, I mean, look, I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize what the gun laws are in this country, right? That there's not a background check required on every gun sale. Um, that it's easy for domestic abusers, including stalkers and dating partners, to have access to guns. Or that in 45 states, open carry is legal and mostly unregulated. So the more uh, that these extremists behave like this, the more that I think American voters, uh, regardless of, of whether they're Republican or Democrats or independents, they support stronger gun laws. Right. I'm curious in the conversations you've had yourself and, and leaders in your organization have had at the grassroots level, when you think about politicians who are enabling this kind of 
behavior, not changing some of those laws, openly celebrating um, mm-hmm. folks carrying machine guns and, and rocket launchers. Is Do they really believe it or are they just um, sort of intimidated themselves by the politics where they think they could lose a primary? I'm just curious. And, and I know there's not one answer, but yeah. uh, what you've learned in terms of psychology here. I, I think it's a mix, frankly. Um, you know, I started Moms Demand Action when I lived in Indiana, and I can tell you that I met with lots of lawmakers, uh, and and many of them did buy into and believe the NRA's rhetoric, right? That uh, there's somehow a slippery slope, and even by requiring a background check on a gun sale, that that somehow that's going to lead to the confiscation of your guns and and overturning the Second Amendment. Um, but I also think that for for many lawmakers, both at a federal and state level, um, it's more about political opportunism. You know, they have seen the NRA as the wealthiest, uh, most powerful special interest that's ever existed in this country, and they've done their bidding. Um, it, you know, it's kind of a a quid pro quo, uh, whether it's uh, campaign cash or an endorsement um, or general support, and that equation had to change. And that's why I said, you know, the, the playbook um, that that candidates have been working from for so long is, is no longer applicable. You really needed a grassroots army like Moms Demand Action um, to come in and to show lawmakers that if they do the right thing, we'll have their back. If they do the wrong thing, we'll have their job. And you know as well as I do that that doesn't happen overnight. It takes several election cycles to show them that that's the case. But if you go back to the Manchin-Toomey bill, which I mentioned earlier, you know several Democratic senators voted against that bill because they were still doing the bidding of the gun lobby. Not a single one of those lawmakers, not a single one of those senators still holds their job. (laughs) (laughs) Because what did the NRA do even after they voted with them? They went in and endorsed their opponents. They went in and supported their opponents financially. And that was a really important lesson that lawmakers learned, which is, you know, with friends like the NRA, who needs enemies? And so Democrats realize now, especially since we have the human and financial resources um, to take on NRA candidates and win, that they can do the right thing, that we will have their backs and that they can win on this issue. It's such a profound paradigm shift uh, that you and, and others in the movement deserve so much credit for. I think 2018 was probably the first time we saw that um, really across the country, right, where, yes. you know, those uh, in favor of gun safety were probably louder, not just as loud as the NRA, more effective. So I'm curious, as you look at the NRA, and obviously they've got financial issues, they've got drama, they're kind of the best definition of a swamp these days. Despite that, uh, there's there's a belief that the NRA for decades really has been maybe the most effective lobby, not just on Capitol Hill, but in terms of affecting elections. How much of that is true? What's mythology? Like, how do you, how do you assess the opposition today? Well, the NRA is weaker than they've ever been, and our movement is stronger than it's ever been. Um, you know, our job is to shine a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. And that's what we've been doing now for almost eight years. And when you look closely at the NRA, which is allegedly a nonprofit organization, you see a lot of sweetheart deals, a lot of self-dealing. Um, Wayne LaPierre, the CEO, spending uh, dollars on things like private jet travel, uh, Italian suits for his own wardrobe. Um, and, and it's clearly not operating 
like a good actor in the space. And that's why they're under investigation on several fronts uh, in Washington, D.C., in New York, uh, by Congress. And look, we don't know where all of the money came from that they invested in Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, you know, $30 million, and they don't have to explain where that came from. And they've been asked about their ties to Russia, and they certainly have not come clean on that. Um, So they are struggling. Uh, We've seen them lay off a significant portion of their staff during the coronavirus crisis. And they are truly struggling. Um, And that's why the 2020 election is more important than ever. We have to elect lawmakers who will stand up to them while they're still as weak as they are. And look, you know, I, I think we've got their foot on their neck right now, but they're just waiting for another Democratic president or Congress um, so that they can juice gun sales. I mean, that's what we've seen them do over and over again. So that's really what makes this such a pivotal moment for our movement. Yeah, sometimes I think the only thing better to them than like Donald Trump getting reelected is him actually losing, right? So that they can scare people and, and juice sales as, as you saw happen during the Obama years. I'm curious. So when we think about the court, uh, the Supreme Court, but also the federal bench throughout the country, there's so many issues, uh, women's health care, um, any number of business and consumer issues. But when you think about gun safety, um, when you think about this next election, how much is that in your mind? Which is, if we don't win, we have four more years of a Republican president. You know, the Supreme Court could be seven-two. Uh, more and more judges throughout the country. I mean, how much of a lid would that put on your progress? Certainly, the courts are a big part of this issue. It's why Every Town for Gun Safety, which is the umbrella organization that that we're under, um, has a litigation team and a strategy. And it's why we do um, work at the court level. But the good news is that we're seeing courts push back against the gun lobby. The Supreme Court just ruled on a case that called a a New York um, case moot because uh, you know it was a, a case that didn't did not was not valid that the NRA was behind. Um, We're seeing courts in states uh, at a state level also push back and say that, you know, it is perfectly within the purview of states to regulate guns, um, that the Second Amendment doesn't say that this is an unregulated right. And, you know, that is, uh, I think, good news. Um, But certainly this election is going to be important for that reason as well. Um, But the other thing to remember is, you know, this isn't just playing about offense, it's also defense. And certainly when the NRA helped elect Donald Trump, they thought they would go right in and pass priority legislation. There's something called concealed carry reciprocity that they've wanted to pass for years. Um, It it essentially uh, eliminates states' gun laws so that you can have a gun no matter where where you are as long as you have a permit. Um, But keep in mind, there are over a dozen permitless carry states, and also the permitting standards range from state to state. So that that was one of their priority laws or bills. And then also, uh, they wanted to deregulate silencers. Um, and, and they worked very hard to do both of those things when they had both a Republican president and a Republican Congress. And we were able to stop them on both fronts. So they certainly have not had a return on their investment, whether you're talking about courts or legislation. Um, it was clearly a failure uh, for the gun lobby. And so if we can continue down this path and win in 2020, um, they are financially and reputationally as weak as they have ever been. 
Well, so, yeah, you've got them on the ropes, so let's go even further, right? Um, I'm curious, so when you, uh, let's say one of your organizers in Wisconsin or Arizona and Florida is talking to a voter, maybe it's a voter who's torn between, are they going to vote for Trump or Biden? Or maybe they're decided they're not going to vote for Trump, but they're saying, I just can't do Biden, I'm going to vote third party, because they say, yeah, you know, I support background checks, but I'm, I'm just worried that if a Democrat gets in there, they'll confiscate our guns. It's a slippery slope, uh, a, ter a term you used earlier. What's the best, with a caveat that obviously everybody's different, and the first thing you want to do in organizing is listening, what do you think the best message is to somebody like that to reassure them that um, they have nothing to worry about? Well, you know, it's important to remember that the vast majority of Americans actually support these laws. I think so often we think that this is polarizing among the general electorate, but it's actually not. It can be polarizing among lawmakers, but the vast majority of Americans, you know, over 85% strongly support things like background checks, disarming domestic abusers, red flag laws. And that is not just among Democrats, that's often gun owners and, and Republicans as well, who strongly support these laws. So when you're talking to someone, you find often when you dig deeper, that you agree on more things than you disagree on. Our organization certainly is an anti-gun. We're not against the Second Amendment. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or their partners are gun owners. You know, there's almost 400 million guns in this country. This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. And so when you're having that conversation, it does seem to be something that most Americans agree on. And look, Joe Biden has said he will make this a priority. You know, even in the news, we're seeing that that Donald Trump rejected an ex-police officer uh, and union member who was going to head the ATF. And, and the reason that he was rejected was because Trump and Republicans were worried that he might actually support something like a background check. That is not in keeping with mainstream American views. So a lot of our listeners will be familiar with your story, but not all. And, and I want to bring you back to the very beginning. So you're in Indiana, mother of five, successful communications executive. What triggered you at first just to get on Facebook and start the group before we get into the organization? So I had had a corporate communications career for over a decade, and then I decided that I was going to stay home for about five years. Um, I was blending a family of with five kids, three of my own, and it just seemed like a good moment to take a break. I had kids ranging in age from elementary school through through college, um, and and I was going to go back to work after five years. Uh, I was in my suburban Indiana home in 2012 folding laundry. Uh, the day that I saw on the news, there was an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut, a city I'd never heard of. And like everyone, I was devastated. Um, particularly, I think, you know, this was happening right before the holidays and the, the, the idea that 20 children and six educators could be murdered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. It was too much to bear. But then I, I became angry because what I saw on my, my TV set over the next 24 hours were pundits and politicians saying that the solution to this was somehow more guns, right? That there just weren't enough guns in this country. And if only those teachers had been armed. 
And I just knew that wasn't right. I didn't know anything about gun violence, legislation, organizing, nothing. But I knew our nation was broken. And so I went online and I thought, okay, I'm going to join something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But on this issue, it's it's time for me to get off the sidelines. And I couldn't find anything. I found some mail-run think tanks in Washington, D.C., um, some one-off state or city organizations also mostly run by men. And I wanted to be, be part of an army of, of women across the country because I, I've seen in my lifetime that that's what gets things done. And I started a Facebook page. That was it. You know, I had 75 Facebook friends. I didn't even have a, a Twitter handle. And it was like lightning in a bottle. All of these other women and moms, mostly from across the country, who said, yep, me too. I want to get off the sidelines. I want to get involved. And you know, I should point out that I am a, a white woman who was living in the suburbs, who was afraid my kids weren't safe in their schools. Obviously, I've learned so much since then that over 100 Americans are shot and so many more uh, are injured. Uh, 100 Americans are shot and killed every single day. Um, and many of those are gun suicides. Many of those are um, gun homicides, uh, unintentional shootings, domestic gun violence, much of it in America's city centers. So we have become an organization that is focused on much more than just mass shootings and school shootings. And, and they are horrible, but they are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. And so we're really looking to address all of it. Such an inspiring story. Uh, you know, as an organizer myself. So you decided to get involved. So you were spurred to action. Um, but then when you saw that there was a gap, you know, rather than shrug your shoulders, you decided to fill it. So you post on Facebook, your friends find other friends, as you said, it's lightning in a bottle. At what point did you decide that maybe there's an organization here? Maybe this is something that I should help nourish and devote you know, basically every waking hour uh, outside of taking care of my kids too. I, I would say it was that day, the day I started the Facebook wow. page. I mean, I can't even tell you how overwhelming the response was. You know, if you know anything about type A women, you understand that they were tracking me down. All my information was public because I never imagined I would be doing this. And so they found my email and my phone number and they were reaching out to me from everywhere. I'm not just talking about blue states. I mean, Texas, the Carolinas, Arkansas. <laughs> and they were saying, you know, I want to do this where I live. And, and really, none of us knew what this was. You know, I mentioned that I was not an organizer. And we just sort of intuitively started to build Facebook pages for every single state. We've used Facebook to organize privately and publicly now for almost eight years, uh, along with many other technologies. And it has never slowed. I think that's what's so amazing to me. I mean, in fact, after the tragedy in Parkland in 2018, our organization tripled in size. And wow. because we had been so astute, and, and we did have, obviously, expert advice from, from actual organizers, um, that enabled us to build an organization that could accommodate that kind of growth. And it has, you know, we show up by the dozens or hundreds in our red shirts. And that has become really an empowering symbol, I think, of, of women being able to get in, involved in an issue that, that imp impacts them so greatly. And look, women only make up 20% of lawmakers in this country. We only make up about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. So as the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And that's the case over and over again. I mean, even look at 
the Violence Against Women Act, right? It's been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk for a year. Why? It includes a provision the NRA opposes that would disarm uh, convicted stalkers and dating partners uh, that are that are convicted of domestic violence. It would prohibit them from buying guns. That's why. And if we had more women who had a seat at the table, that bill would be law. You know that that it would have been reauthorized by now. And so it, you know, I I think that's why it's so important to me also um, that our volunteers and gun violence survivors move from not just shaping policy but to actually making it. And we have 39 volunteers and gun violence survivors who are running for office in 2020, um, and and we see this now increasing every single election cycle. That's so important. Uh, it's a great lesson for people out there about both how to build organization and and ultimately to understand that, uh, you know, yeah, it's not just policy. It's not even organizing or resources that you've got to change the players to change the game. So uh, so you've had, obviously, um, you've been on this real rocket ride for the last uh, eight years. You, you've built an amazing organization. You've had a lot of successes out there. So as you think about, let's say, the next five or six years of the organization, obviously you have this election right in front of you. You're pouring so much of your time and resources into it. But um, what like what concerns you? You you know, you mentioned you tripled after Parkland. So you're seeing the growth. But, you know, and this is less about like legislation or, or even organizing, just the health of the organization. Um, what do you what are you mindful of as you look out into the future over the next few years? Well, you know, first of all, we need to win in 2020. We absolutely yeah, do right. because that that changes the trajectory of this issue for many years. If Joe Biden becomes the president, if we flip the Senate, hold the House, um, then we can finally pass laws at a federal level. We've really been going state by state, and look, guns cross over state lines as easily as cars do. So we do need federal laws. Um, that require a background check, uh, that disarm domestic abusers, red flag laws, and on and on. Um, and so that that would be certainly a, a game changer. And if if that doesn't happen, although I think it will, um, you know, we would be playing more defense uh, for years to come. Uh, I think the students demand action organization that we've created that has become incredibly strong since the Parkland tragedy, uh, that continuing to um, make that as as large and as powerful as Moms Demand Action is key. Obviously, it's a different um, type of uh, volunteer because they're students for a limited amount of time. And once you're a mom, you're a mom forever. Uh, but I think that work is important because once we do have wins, just like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, they still have to show up and protect the gains that they've made. Um, and we need to continue to do this work in, in states where they have been um, not listening to constituents. For example, Texas, the vast majority of Texans, again, gun owners, Republicans, Democrats alike, support stronger gun laws. And yet the lawmakers in charge there have, have not listened and have not acted in the wake of so many horrific shooting tragedies in that state. And, and the demographics are now ripe for change. They're younger, they're more diverse. Um, you know, they're part of a generation that is angry that they have had to essentially rehearse their deaths in the bathrooms of their classrooms for years. Uh, and, and I really think we will start to see a shift. And look, our goal is that this is not a partisan issue, that that Republicans support 
publicly and and vote on this issue and uh, make laws on this issue based on the fact that it is supported and it's the right thing to do. And and that's why we're we're nonpartisan, we're we're research based because this has to be an issue that that both parties agree on and and I think we can get there. So it's interesting when you say you've got uh, members of your organization running in 2020, you do think about, you know, this decade. I mean, my presumption is you're going to see a lot of nurses and doctors coming out of this pandemic decide to seek office because they're not satisfied with what they've seen. Uh, More and more uh, gun violence survivors and activists in the gun safety movement running. I mean, that could really change the complexion of state legislatures and Congress and council members. Speak a little bit about that because I think you make such an important point, which is at some point you can even do perfect organizing and you run up against that wall where the folks in the decision-making, you know, they're just so resistant um, that you've got to say, okay, we have to rearrange the deck chairs a little bit here. I think that's absolutely right. You know, since 2017, nearly 100 Moms Demand Action volunteer leaders have run for elected office and dozens of them have won, uh, most notably Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Um, a gun violence survivor and also a form, former Moms Demand Action spokeswoman. She's now a, a congresswoman in Georgia, which we're just so incredibly proud of her. Um, but you know, this year we have among the 39 I mentioned uh, volunteers, gun violence survivors who are running for office. Eleven are educators. Five of them are medical professionals. Uh, seven are gun violence survivors, and one is a veteran. And so I think you're exactly right. How do we? move from shaping policy to actually making it. And that is a big focus of of our organization. And I'll be honest with you, when you spend time in state houses, um, you realize that these are not rocket scientists and that if you are caring and committed and passionate, um, then you are more than qualified to hold elected office. And I think, you know, women have this gating factor where they're, they're often fearful of, of failing in public, or they don't think that they should run because they're not qualified, they haven't crossed all the T's or dotted all the I's. I don't think men have those same issues to hold them back. And so when our volunteers spend so much time talking to their lawmakers, spending time in state houses or or even you know on the Hill in DC, they realize that they can do this too. And I, I think that's an important part of, of activism. Absolutely. No, I mean, one of the most stirring things about 2018 was on election night when, you know, you know, we still all, we don't watch television like we used to, right? But election nights, we still all spend kind of gathered around and or on the internet, you'd see the pictures of all these women, a lot of moms, you know, you mentioned Lucy McBath, but it was such a stirring, um, it was such a stirring thing to witness, right? It's, it's what we need to see happen really every election cycle. Uh, over the next four or five, so that we have, um, you know, that kind of committed voices in power. Uh, and, and it sounds like your members are really starting to answer that call. So I'm curious, Shannon, you, you mentioned you have uh, five, uh, you know, children in your family. So they see your commitment every day. Uh, you have uh, moms across the country who are working, um, you know, basically every spare hour uh, to protect uh, our children and our communities, students demand volunteers, but you must talk to kids. I know I certainly do who just, you know, they're somewhat despondent 
You know, they just don't understand how this can happen in our country. You know, students dying in schools, on streets, in apartment buildings, people carrying around weapons of war. What do you say to kids um, who, um, you know, are somewhat disbelieving um, about the current state and, and give them confidence that things can change? Well, sadly, I'm not sure they are disbelieving. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I wrote a book called Fight Like a Mother. and Great book, by the way. Highly recommended, folks. Thank you. Both in terms of, you know, the issue of gun safety, but just how to lead and build an organization. It's, it's a really a great guide. Thank you. And the proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations. But I, I tell a story in it about my son. And he was uh, about 11 when the tragedy in Aurora, Colorado movie theater happened. And he was so upset by that, that he wouldn't go to the movies. He really struggled with anxiety. And so about six months later, when the Sandy Hook school shooting happened, I was dreading that he would find out about this. Um, I can remember spending the weekend after it happened with the TV off and and knowing I was going to have to tell him before he went back to school on Monday. And I did. I sat down with him Sunday night and and explained what had happened. And he just sort of looked at me and said, yeah, well, that's what happens in America, mom. And so I don't think kids are disbelieving. I think it's tragic that they are actually accepting that this can happen in America. But I do think they're angry. And I do think they think adults and, and lawmakers have failed them and that there will be a different trend um, uh, among them that even the lawmakers coming out of the, the next generations will have a different view of this, regardless of political party. But I would also say that my story goes to show that if I got involved in activism and took on the most powerful, wealthy, special interests that ever existed with an army of other women and were winning, anyone can. Whatever issue you're passionate about, democracy is about getting off the sidelines and it's about getting involved. It's about using your voice and your vote to change the politics of America. And it really can happen just by being an activist. So for Shannon, for people who are listening, who are motivated and want to join you in this historic fight, what's the best way for them to get involved in Moms Demand if they're not already? So to get involved in Moms Demand Action, and again, um, it's mothers and others, you can text the word READY to 64433, and someone will get back to you pretty instantaneously and, and help plug you in where you live. And like I said, there's so many virtual events going on right now. We're busier than we've ever been. Um, if you're interested in joining Students Demand Action, text the word STUDENTS to 64433. And again, uh, we will plug you in wherever you live. We, we're we on, on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, we even have a, a Facebook page for every single state. So again, we have $60 million to spend in the 2020 elections. And you know, even if you give us an hour of your time, I can promise you uh, that we will use it wisely and, and effectively. Well, I hope folks listening um, give serious thought to helping Shannon and, and her team make progress both in this election and in the years to come. Shannon, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your leadership, uh, both for our country today and, and existing generations, but you're really doing such important work for those to come. And uh, we wish you the best of luck <laughs> You know, over the next few months, uh, continuing to build and hopefully we'll have the kind of outcome on November 3rd we all need um, for our country, for our planet. Um, but, uh, you know, particularly as it relates to your issues, this is a seminal election. So um, we, uh, we hope, wish you the best of luck. 
I appreciate that. And, and thank you for, for your support and, and often wisdom online on, on how important it is for people to get out there and, and get activated, even if they're scared uh, of getting on social media. I've heard you talk about that. And, and really now is the time to, to get on Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram and all the other different social media outlets and, and push back and educate people uh, and get out the vote. Well, Shannon, your story and, and your organization, I think, is, is the best example. And I think you're right. So many people, you mentioned the barriers people have running for office, but even getting involved, even like talking to voters there, you know, understandably, people, can I do this? Will it be effective? And, you know, President Obama used to say, one voice can change a room and it can change a state and it can change a country, it can change the world. Um, and I think what you have done really is the best example of that, which is, um, you know, somebody just being motivated by an issue, uh, deciding to strike out against all odds, uh, and you can change lives and you can change the future of this country. So it's a great example that uh, um, there is no one model for this, right? It's it's just a committed person who then organizes other committed persons, and all of a sudden magic can happen after a lot of hard work. So once again, thank you for that model of leadership and all you're doing uh, to, uh, to serve our country and, and make it a better place. Thank you. Thanks, Shannon. I want to thank Shannon for her time and my message to all of you is one, uh, if you care about gun safety, and a lot of you do, and you haven't joined an organization like Moms Demand Action or Students Demand Action, please do. All it takes is a quick text and you can get involved. And for all of those uh, you out there who maybe are thinking about getting involved in an issue locally, federally, globally, you know, it's a great example that uh, don't take no for an answer. You can get involved, and most people are going to get involved and contribute what time they have uh, without leading an organization. But if you see a gap out there, Shannon's a great example of someone who decides, rather than bemoan that, to fill it. And uh, I think this is a place where, you know, the internet and social media and the digital world we live in makes starting a nourishing organization, it's always hard, but, but easier than it used to be. And so hopefully you're motivated by the work that she and her organization are doing. I hope you think about joining them. And uh, again, could a very inspiring example of the kind of organizing leadership and ethos uh, we need to make progress on issues in this country and around the world. So thank you for tuning in and we'll be with you next week.